uh, kids, if, if I could have your attention, uh, I want you to really, really pay attention to what we're about to do because this, what we're about to do, baptizing Nathan, is what the passage is going to be about. It's what the sermon is going to be about, okay? So kids, what, is, what do you think baptism is about? Throw it out. What do you think? Water. Excellent. Jesus was baptized. Very, very good. Thank you for that. All right. What else? What else? What else is baptism about? You know, uh, here's, here's crazy. Here's what we don't usually think about. Baptism is about judgment. It's about judgment. Okay, so question. Is Nathan a good baby? Oh, weird nose. <laughs> That's very reformed of you. Uh, okay. But is, look, look at Nathan. Is Nathan a good baby? Yes, Nathan is a, Nathan, you're a great baby. Okay, but is Nathan good enough to get to heaven by himself? No, he needs Jesus. So this is really intense. This is really crazy. What, I, what I'm about to say is really, really intense. But baptizing Nathan, we are saying that God's judgment is going to fall on Nathan. Like that's intense. But here's the big question. Are you going to be alone or not alone when God's judgment falls on you? Because it's going to fall on all of us. And if you're alone and God's judgment falls on you, kids, you will fall. You'll fall forever. But the good news of the gospel is if you believe in Jesus, that he lived for you, that he died for your sins, that he was raised for you to be your Lord and your Savior, when God's judgment falls on you, it falls on Jesus because he's with you. It falls on him so that he takes your fall. That's what happens on the cross. So that you will never fall. That's what baptism is about. That's what we're about to do. And baptism is this awesome thing that says, not only do you need Jesus, but look, you need this family. And so baptizing Nathan means he is now in our church family. <clears throat> okay. So here's what we're doing. I'm catching everybody up here. Uh, we're in our series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Israel, so if you're just joining us, totally okay. Here we go, ready? Israel had been taken into captivity <clears throat> by Babylon for 70 years. Then uh, Persia comes onto the scene, and now Persia is the big bad. And, uh, and Persia takes over that whole area of the world, and they free the Jews. And they tell the Jews, listen, under our empire, you can go wherever you want. You want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? <clears throat> Knock yourself out. Go for it. So, back. And they start rebuilding. And they find trouble on every side. Suffering. Terrible suffering. And opposition. And they're looking to God saying, what is going on? I thought you were with us. I thought you brought us back for this. What? Um, and, uh, and so God sends his prophet Zechariah to the people with these visions, these crazy night visions that all reveal to the people that God is with them. Uh, new vision today. This is a new one. Sixth vision. There are seven total visions. And they're so beautiful because all these seven visions, they parallel each other. So the structure is amazing uh, in the book of Zechariah. Uh, and today we're looking at the sixth vision. And this whole passage is one vision. We're just looking at the first half though, but you, we need first half, second half for today and for next Sunday. So with that, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. 
And the angel said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits. Its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that's going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden basket cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on, on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The, the wind was in their wings. They had wings like wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. This is that thing of, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a gigantic piece of paper that Zechariah sees. It's a, it's a scroll, and it's not, it's not floating like paper floats in the wind. No, it's not floating, it's flying. And there's writing on both sides of it, and it measures 20 by 10 cubits. And we're told that it is the curse that goes out over the whole land. Okay, and so if at that point you feel like God is ratcheting up the weirdness factor, like with each new vision, like you're not crazy. This is so weird but it's not random, okay? Uh, and there's plenty to go on here to figure out what is, what is this? The biggest clue that we're given is that the angel tells Zechariah the scroll is a curse. Zechariah and the Jews who are hearing this, they know where you find curses written down on scroll paper. It's the covenant document. The covenant that God made with the, you know, the father of their, uh, not, not Abraham, but that other father, uh, that this covenant that God made with Moses on uh, Mount Sinai. Kicking off, you know, it's that whole thing, uh, that, that covenant gets kicked off with the Ten Commandments, and then it keeps going, going, going. Okay, so what is, the question is, what does that covenant at Sinai have to do with a flying curse scroll? Okay, remember your daily Bible reading, and you remember when you got all the way through Leviticus? Uh, and in uh, Leviticus 26, you read about God's promises to uh, bless Israel if they obey the law. Okay, that section in Leviticus 26, it's 13 verses long, and it talks about blessings. Verse 14 kicks off a section where God promises to curse Israel for disobedience and for rebellion. That curse section is 33 verses long. You keep, and you remember you kept reading in your daily Bible reading, and you got all the way through Deuteronomy, uh, and at the end, in chapter 28, you read about these blessings again for 14 verses, and then you read 54 verses 
of curses for disobedience, which means that the old Mosaic covenant given at Sinai is heavily weighted on the curse side. Meaning, so picture in your mind's eye, like see this with Zechariah, this flying scroll of curses. Uh, and this is what God warned Israel. Okay, see if, see if as you're picturing this flying scroll of curses, see if this now makes sense. Uh, this is what God tells Israel in Deuteronomy 28. It says, it shall come to pass if you do not obey Yahweh your God, all these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, swooping down like an eagle. You will be plucked off the land and Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples. And then you get to this stuff about the scroll measuring 20 by 10 cubits. Okay, what is that? Really weird. It is, but it's not random. Inside the Holy of Holies, so think about the temple of God. And there's the holy place, and then there's that inner, inner room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. That inner, inner room, in there, that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And on top of that Ark is this very ornate lid, and it's got two giant angels on it with, with wings stretched out. Well, they've got four sets of wings, four pairs, they've got four wings, two pairs, Four wings like a butterfly. Uh, their inner wings are, are meeting in the middle of the ark like this. So their, their, their wings are uh, stretching out over the middle of the ark, meeting in the middle. And then their other wings are, are stretched out this way to the end of the Holy of Holies. So with outstretched wings, those guys measure 20 cubits. And they just happen to be 10 cubits tall, which means there is no doubt that the vision of the flying scroll is directing our attention, this flying scroll is directing our attention to the winged angels who sit atop and who guard the Ark of the Covenant and what lies within it, which is the Sinai Covenant scroll. So the message of this vision is this. The king, you know, this is like that Ark of the Covenant. It's like God's throne on earth. So, so the king of glory enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant scroll is going to guard the holiness, the sanctity of the land according to the covenant scroll, which means God is going to execute these curses on Israel once again, like he did with Babylon. Begs the question, question like Israel will once again forsake God. That begs the question, question, like, dude, what'd you do? Like, what did Israel do to deserve these curses? God had, remember, God had sent Babylon as a judgment against Israel because of Israel's idolatry. Like, they, they literally worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols made of stone and wood. They worshipped the Baals. They worshipped the Asherahs. They worshipped the stars. And they did it out in the open. And so, Punishment fits the crime. God comes along and says, you like, you like idols? You're going to love Babylon. And that's where you're going. Uh, and, and so uh, they go into exile for 70 years. But, but, on the other side of that 70-year exile, as God has now brought them back, what we know is when the Jews come back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, Israel is not tempted again to worship Baal or to offer up their children as burnt offerings to Molech. 
And in the New Testament times, you know, fast forward another 500 years, in the New Testament times, the Jews never worshiped Zeus. They're not tempted to worship the pagan gods of the Greeks or the Romans. So begs the question, okay, so wait, then what, are the, what is this, this people that's been brought back? Like, what are they guilty of after the exile to bring down this curse scroll? It says in verse 3, it says that uh, swearing falsely and stealing, that's what they're doing. They're swearing falsely and they're stealing. And we hear that and it's tempting to think about like, ooh, swearing falsely, like, like telling little white lies kind of thing. Like, yeah, okay, maybe I, I, I distort the truth or I just don't give the whole truth. Like, okay, it's that. And, and, and then skimming a bit off the top like stealing, okay, that's intense, but like what about just skimming off the top? Is that going to get you cursed by God? Little white lies skimming off the top? Well, at the beginning, so I'm going to do this one more time. At the beginning of this year, researchers from Texas A&M and Texas State uh, Universities, they pulled 406 invasive sucker mouth armored catfish from the San Marcos River in Texas. This was in January of this year. Uh, these fish are native to South America, but people buy them for their fish aquariums, uh, aquarists, however you say that, uh, aquarium people, because they clean the bottoms, they clean the bottoms of the tanks and they, and they clean the sides. They keep, they eat all the algae. Uh, and, and so people who buy them, uh, get them because th- these are great natural cleaners, but they do not realize that these fish who start off itty bitty, they grow to, uh, up to two and a half feet long. And when they get that big, these people dump them. <laughs> they dump them in the rivers. Well, these things, these sucker mouth armored catfish, not only grow rapidly, they can survive out of water for over 20 hours. The fish has armored skin. And so it has no natural predators in Texas. And all of these factors combined make their population explode and these fish that started out as pets end up decimating native species and native vegetation, which destabilizes the riverbanks. It's a gigantic problem. And so come back to this, swearing falsely, you know, from telling little white lies to lying, you know, uh, skimming off the top, cheating. We, it's that thing of we have, quote unquote, pet sins that start off small, but they grow and they grow. And soon they're not just taking our, over our individual tanks, they take over our entire ecosystem. That's what sin does. Uh, swearing falsely is, is actually to dishonor God's name, which violates that, that requirement to love God with your whole heart. Stealing, stealing from one's neighbor violates that requirement to love your neighbor as yourself. So these two sins violate what Jesus refers to as the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor. The stuff about measurements and weights, uh, the stuff about stealing and lying oaths, what this is really pointing to is the world of commerce. And so this stuff about swearing falsely, and and then you get to the end of this passage, and there's this stuff about timber, wood, and stones that are going to be consumed. Well, Moses, in many parts of the Bible, like we just said, say that, uh, describe idols as as wood and stone. So all of this points to idolatry. As in, like, they thought, oh, well, I'm not worshiping, you know, Baal or Zeus anymore. I'm beyond idolatry. 
And the point is, no, no, you're not. You put the two of these together in the pictures that Israel is going to reject and forsake God and prostitute themselves to the love of the glory of the world. Uh, to the worship of, of money and power. Okay, but this also begs the question. Okay, wait, okay, that does sound serious, but I thought God was merciful, and I thought he was gracious. Like, how can they be cursed for their sin and their idolatry? And you've got to remember this. We've got to know this, that the Sinai covenant with the curses, that was a covenant of works with the nation Israel. It's not the same thing as the covenant of grace, which is, the covenant of grace is about how an individual gets to heaven. That's not what the Sinai covenant is about, uh, and the Sinai covenant didn't change that. The, the Sinai covenant is not about how an individual gets to heaven through their works. That's not what it's about. The Sinai covenant is about Israel, the nation, holding on to the land of Canaan together. The Sinai covenant made with Israel, it makes Israel a theocratic kingdom on earth. It makes it a theocracy. Theocratic kingdom on earth, which is, it's this symbolic, you know, the one word that people, a typological kingdom in the land of Canaan pointing to the ultimate real thing that's in heaven. And the way the nation Israel retained the land was to obey the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. And if they disobeyed the law and worshiped idols, then they were kicked out of the land. They lost the land, which is exactly what happens. And Israel will swear that they're innocent of the charges. They'll attempt to clear themselves of hating God and cheating their neighbor. But verse 3 basically says this, that though they cleared themselves, God cleared them out. <clears throat> that this curse will enter their house and homes, it, it, both timber and fire. It's a, it's a total destruction. The demolition is total. And, and if you take all of those elements together, it starts to sound really, really familiar. God launches this attack. <clears throat> the attack is an aerial assault. The curse flies over the whole land and enters houses to inflict destruction. I don't know what you hear there, but what the Jews hear, what they would hear is echoes of Egypt, the 10 plagues, especially that 10th plague where God sends his angel destroyer passing over all the land of Egypt, entering into the houses of the Egyptians, killing all their firstborns. But there's a big difference here between the 10th plague uh, on Egypt and the sixth vision of Zechariah's flying scroll, scroll. This is actually a reversal of the 10th plague. Because there was a way out for the Israelites. Like back in Egypt, because they were under grace, each individual, each family could slaughter a lamb as a substitute for their firstborn, put the sacrificial blood over the doorways, and it says, and God graciously passed over them for judgment. But the nation of Israel, here in Zechariah, the nation Israel is under the law. They are going to receive, as a nation, the same punishment for their idolatry that Egypt got back in the day. Because now God directly targets Israel. He's treating them like Egyptians, like the Egyptians. And the angel will come from above into their homes with destruction. What the sixth vision is prophesying is, it's simply that it is the end of the old covenant. 
national Israel will be cleared out because they will forfeit their inheritance by forsaking God. And this time they're not going to recover the land. The kingdom's not going to be recovered. It's done. The typological kingdom of Israel, God's theocratic kingdom on earth, it will be done and over. The Jews will be dispersed. This is the doom that Jesus announces to his disciples, to the religious leaders, to the people. In Matthew 23, he says, your house, it is left to you desolate. As an old covenant Israel, it will fall. The Jews of Zechariah's day did not see the fulfillment of this, but the Jews of Jesus' day did. In Jesus' day, Israel and its leadership, they were thieves. They were perjurers. They turned the temple of God into a den of thieves. But the height, the height of their idolatry and forsaking God is that they bear false witness against the Son of God. So after all their idolatry, they reject God's Son whom he sent to them. And in rejecting Jesus and murdering him, they had completely violated every aspect of the old covenant as a nation. And the temple was now truly a den of thieves. And so Jesus, having been rejected and put to death and then resurrected and ascended, just as he sent foreign armies in the past, so he sends, Jesus sends the Roman army as his judgment in 70 AD, destroying the temple once and for all. And it's awful and it is sad, and it is broken, this judgment. But we also know there is something beyond the fall of Israel. The, set, the, the seven visions in Zechariah, they don't just parallel each other in beautiful, awesome ways. They, they actually make up just the first half of the book of Zechariah, and the first half parallels the second half in awesome, beautiful ways. And in the parallel section in the second half of the book of Zechariah to, to this sixth vision, it's Zechariah 13, and, in, and it's there that it's prophesying, Israel's, it's prophesying Israel's judgment again, that it's coming. But it says that two-thirds of the people are cut off, but one-third of the people are left alive, a remnant who truly believe in God. So, yeah, in 70 A.D., the nation of Israel is judged, and the nation of Israel ends as God's kingdom on earth. But not all Israel is judged. As in the old covenant order ends, but there is a remnant of God's people that lives beyond the old covenant order under a new covenant order. The church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the flying, the flying scroll, it's a, it's a surgical strike, as one commentator put it, sparing a remnant who will become the nucleus. The Jews, this group of Jews will become the nucleus of the community of faith under the new covenant of grace. And of course, that begs the question, <clears throat> another question, uh, wait, now how can, if there's, how can there be a remnant? How can anyone be saved, Jew or Gentile, if we are cursed for our sin? In that Exodus passage in chapter 12 that describes that, that original event of Passover, there are, there are two Hebrew verbs there, avar and pasach, and, and, and they've both 
been translated traditionally as Passover. Passover is a great translation for avar in that passage. The verb describes God and it describes his destroyer angel passing over his people in his wrath, killing all the firstborns. Yes, great. But this other verb, Pesach, uh, should not be translated as Passover. It should be translated the way it's translated in every other part of the Bible uh, to mean hover over or cover over. Because what God tells Israel in Exodus 12 is that during that dark night of death, that final plague, the Lord will protectively hover over. He will cover over his people as a shielding presence. As in the awesome reality of that Passover night was that the Lord protects his people from the between them and the wrath of the destroyer. And who is the destroyer? It's God himself. As in God protects his people from himself by covering over them, guarding their blood-marked doorways against the entrance of the destroyer so that his wrath will pass over them. Uh, 2012, uh, Friday, it's a Friday afternoon, a series of tornadoes appear and they start tearing through the, the town of Henryville, Indiana. And a woman named Stephanie Decker uh, is at home with her young son and daughter and they look up and they see this tornado. And they rush to their basement as the tornado flies toward them. I mean, literally a curse in the sky flying towards them. And just before the storm hits, uh, Stephanie covers her children with a blanket to shield them from the debris. Uh, and then she stretches out her arms. And she covers over them with her own body. And the storm comes and it devastates everything until it's just the basement that is totally exposed. And the tornado falls on Stephanie and the children, sending wave after wave of debris onto the body of Stephanie. Beams, pillars, furniture slam into her body. Bone after bone is breaking. Two steel beams fall on her legs, severing them. Then it quiets down. But Stephanie knows that they're just in the eye of the storm. Uh, and so again, uh, she braces for the next wave. And the storm falls on her again. And when the storm finally passes over, Stephanie's two children have suffered the storm too. But it passed over them. And under the cover of their mom, they emerged without a scratch. A reversal of the Passover, but the ultimate Passover is a reversal of Zechariah's vision. It's a fulfillment of the original Passover that in the fullness of time, the Son of God has come to put himself between the wrath of God and his people. This is the true Lamb of God. The church made up of Jews and Gentiles, on the cross, Jesus becomes our cover over. As the wrath of God passes over us and it falls on Jesus, freeing us from the curse of sin, freeing us from the curse of death, freeing us from the curse of the fall. And I, I, listen, here's the end. I know that is fire hydrant drinking right there. I know that is a lot to take in. But what that should encourage us is that that is our history. Like, that is just scratching the surface of the uh, profundity of our history. 
the history of God saving his people and being with his people. And here, here's the so what, is that Israel is a microcosm of the world, as in all mankind, every single person, we have all broken the covenant of works that was given to Adam in the garden at the very beginning. And God's message, this message of Israel and what Israel is, the message to the world is, is that if God judged his people first for breaking his law, then he's going to judge all the peoples of the world, all the nations who break his law. The judgment of Israel, it's a red flag. It is an alarm bell. It's a loud, visible message to the world that you cannot do it by yourself. You cannot do it as a people. You cannot earn this thing of heaven. You are in desperate need of a Lord and Savior, true Israel, who does it for you. And the temptation for our church today is this temptation of, uh, the way another pastor put it, is like we want separation from true believers and false professors. Like, and the temptation in the church is to start adding to the gospel to make that separation more distinct. As in, it's really tempting to add qualifiers to the gospel of, you've got to do this. You better be sure you're doing this. It's, and it's really easy for the pastor uh, to start pounding the pulpit when he sees sin in the congregation, become more threatening to the people. Uh, and it's because in the church we think that we can separate true believers from false professors and the church ends up pushing people to over-examine themselves. And we stop preaching free grace. And if you stop preaching grace, then you start filling true believers with despair. And true believers start to worry, okay, wait, what, what if I'm not saved because I'm not spiritual enough? Or I'm not advanced in my theology enough? Or I'm not doing enough good in the world? I had, I had lunch with one of you this week with your uh, father-in-law, who's a pastor, and that pastor told us that uh, growing up, he grew up, uh, he was in a church that only preached the law because the pastor told him, because if he preached grace, then people would go off living however they want to live. And this, and this pastor remembers his family coming out of worship every Sunday, so dejected. And so beaten down. When you turn a sermon into a, you better, re- you better really believe this stuff. You better be obedient. Uh, you start pushing people away from the Lord and questioning themselves. You steal their hope. You steal their assurance. They start wondering, are they good enough for Jesus? No. That's the point. You're not good enough for Jesus. And neither am I. He was good for us because we're not good enough. That's the awesomeness of grace. And Martin, Martin Luther, uh, you know, a reformer, uh, it, it once asked, he was, he, Martin Luther was once asked, hey, don't you worry about all the goats in your church. I mean, this is just Matthew language for like the unbelievers in your church who say they believe. Aren't you worried about all the goats in your church when you preach free grace and justification by faith alone? And Luther said, no, I preach to God's people. The law would not change goats anyways. If the gospel doesn't change them, nothing will. Why would I ever stop preaching the gospel of grace? The curse for sin will fall on us. The question is, are we alone or not alone 
when it falls, if it is just you and the curse of sin falls on you, you will fall to forever. But if you are in Jesus and the curse falls on you, it falls on Jesus. He takes the fall for you and you will never fall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the awesomeness of your grace, which for us, it it is so awesome, it is hard to believe that you are so good, that you are so full of mercy. Lord, we praise your son for doing what we could not do. Lord, we we thank you for the gospel of grace, and we pray that, that the cross would be bigger today to us than it was yesterday, that tomorrow the cross will be bigger tomorrow than it is today, that the more and more we see our sin and our brokenness, the more we would see your awesome love and your grace and your salvation. Father, help us to hold out that same grace to each other because we are a broken people. We've done nothing to deserve this. Father, it is all by grace, so help us to extend that grace to each other as we seek to commit ourselves to each other in love and in service. And Lord, give us that same grace for those who do not know you. We are no more deserving of them. We pray that you would give us love and wisdom to share that grace faithfully to the world. And we pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.